0: you know what sucks when people get credit for something for nothing when people get ahead of you but they just didn't earn it or they didn't go for their fair share, they took way more than their fair share, or when people were unjustly favored just because they were part of the club and you weren't, there needs to be standards. And unless you do it and get your spot from your hard work, you don't belong. You know what? Affirmative action sucks. Today's podcast is the history of affirmative action for white people. Today we will talk about what is this notion of affirmative action? What is affirmative action? What does it mean? What is the history of affirmative action? And were there any examples of affirmative action for white people? And lastly, we'll get into does affirmative action even work now? Welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is written while I'm over to the winter break. So it's over my holiday season. So honestly, I don't have a lot of things to talk about. I'm not gonna be able to go into depth about my personal life, and I won't be able to go into depth on the podcast, because not that many things new happen when it's only been two days since I've podcasted. So as far as the podcast goes, I am toying with the idea of having Sarah on the podcast, as well as doing a podcast with Michelle. And the podcast with michelle just got done recording so there's not much more to say about that without giving it away but the idea of what i want to do with sarah is a retrospective on the podcast how have we seen it move or change or develop what have we gotten good or bad at what were some lessons learned uh the hard way or otherwise uh these are the folk that i feel are most invested in the inclusive activism podcast and i think hearing from them about how the podcast started, if we are seeing progress with the podcast, or not, might be interesting to you all. So if you would like to be part of that conversation, our year in retrospective, please, and that will happen in February at some point in time, please remember you can email me at inclusiveactivism@cox.net. That's I-N-C-L-U-S-I-V-E-A-C-T-I-V-I-S-M at cox.net, That's or you can leave me a voicemail on the hotline, which is 860 576 9393. Again, that number is 876 oh, no, no, it's 860 576 9393. Again, more and more time clean, 860 576 9393. I would love to hear your thoughts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher. On, you can't do it on Google Play, but if there was a way to do it on Google Play, doing it on Google Play makes a difference. It's so much easier to review stuff on iTunes, and I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to review us and let us know what you're getting out of this, why you enjoy hearing about this, and how we can get better. I would really, really appreciate those things. Also remember to subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you get it when, as soon as it's downloaded. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Overcast, on Player FM, on Pocket Casts, or on Google Play, and these are great ways for me to show proof of work to potential sponsors, and it would go a long, long way to getting my producer paid for her potential work someday. So checking in on my activism right now, currently my activism is podcasting and rest in all honesty. I'm also checking on my, on my classes for spring semester, seeing if I'm getting more and more students in there or not. And I'm also trying to learn on how to better promote the podcast, although honestly I could be doing better in that activism area because I haven't done much of that recently. My self-care has been decent in that I have gotten to lift at least two times the week the gym was closed, but I got a lot of cardio done. And I'm really, really proud of that because I really don't like cardio at all. Cardio sucks for me, and I don't appreciate that process, but I've gotten a lot of cardio and my breath has been getting so much better that, in all honesty, I am, like, I was breathing so deeply that I could, I was coughing, I was coughing up uh, extra mucus from the far, far deep sacs of my breathing, and so I think the cardio has been something that's been particularly getting better. So I'm really proud to see my progress improving with the cardio specifically. Because remember, I told you a few weeks ago, I've been really worried about my heart and worried about my breath. And so getting deep breath has been really important too. And I feel like that cardio that I've been doing, I don't know, like, I feel like my skin looks better. I don't know if my skin looks better or if I've just been doing my cardio outside, so I'm just tanner. But you know, hey, it's a thing, right? I have meditated at least two times a week for at least 10 to 15 minutes and I will need to get another day in. That is super important. And lastly, I'm meeting up with people I care about, so I'm trying to find some ways to connect with the people that matter to me and uh, get those positive things done specifically. So on to the podcast for today, which is about white affirmative action. So first thing, what even is affirmative action? Affirmative action policies are those in which an institution or an organization actively engages in efforts to improve opportunities for historically excluded groups in American society. Affirmative action policies often focus on employment and education. In institutions of higher education, affirmative action refers to admission policies that provide equal access to education for those groups who have been historically excluded or underrepresented such as women or minorities controversy surrounding the constitutionality of affirmative action program has been a heated topic of debate in recent times specifically so here's some background on affirmative action affirmative action is an outcome of the 1960 civil rights movement intended to provide equal opportunities for members of minority groups and women in education and employment. In 1961, Robert Kennedy was the first to use the term affirmative action as an executive order that directed government contractors to take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that the employees are treated equally during their employment without regard to their race, their creed, their color, or national origin. The Executive Order also established the President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity, now known as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC. Affirmative action policies initially focused on improving opportunities for African Americans in employment and in education. The Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954 outlawing school segregation and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 improved life prospects for African Americans. In 1965, however, only 5% of undergraduate students and 1% of law students and 2% of medical students in this country were African American. President Lyndon Johnson, an advocate of affirmative action, signed an executive order in 1965 that required government contractors to use affirmative action policies in their hiring to increase the number of minority employees. In the following years, colleges and universities began adopting similar recruitment policies. And over time, the enrollment rates for African-American and Latino students increased steadily. Despite efforts that have been made To establish equal opportunity, gaps in college enrollment between minority and white students remain. According to the data from the National Center of Education Studies in 2007, 70% of white high school graduates immediately enrolled in college, compared to 56% of African American graduates and 61% of Hispanic graduates. More recent data from the NCES reports that there have been some changes in this gap, most notably for African American students. The update finds that in 2011, 69% of all white students immediately enrolled in college compared to 65% of African American students and 63% of Hispanic graduates. Now let's move on to the affirmative action debate. The use of race as a factor in the college admissions progress has been and continues to be a hotly debated topic. Supporters of affirmative action make the following arguments. Affirmative action is more of a policy than just an admissions policy. Colleges and universities reach out to groups that are underrepresented and encourage students to apply. Institutions often offer financial aid to underrepresented groups and provide on-campus support programs to improve their academic success so annoying to me because of the fact that it looks at the fact those students as a deficit rather than seeing the fact that they've lived through so much difficulty and are bringing that to us. Affirmative action programs have resulted in a doubling and tripling in the number of minority applications to colleges and universities and have made colleges and universities more representative of their surrounding communities. Graduates who have benefited from affirmative action programs said that they have received better jobs earned more money and are ultimately living better lives because of the opportunity they received Diversity in higher education Provides an educational advantage for all students both personally as well as intellectually We exist in a global and multicultural society and in order to achieve success employers and employees must be able to work effectively with the diverse society that surrounds them. And lastly, the supportive argument is affirmative action policies are necessary in order to com- compensate for centuries of racial, social and economic oppression. Generally, the individuals with higher so- socioeconomic status have had more opportunities than those from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Supporters believe that certain racial or ethnic groups have been disadvantaged and are frequently more likely to be in lower income brackets and are consequently not exposed to the same resources as students from higher socioeconomic classes. Advocates support the notion of competition between students based on merit but argue that affirmative action compensates for economic disparities. I also linked information where I got that information from uh, so you can find it in the show notes. Secondly, has there been affirmative action for white people? So, here are some examples that I've found, and I'm going to go into these in much more detail as I move forward. So, here are some white affirmative action examples. 40 acres and a mule was a promise made to black folks post-Civil War. So, all freed slaves were supposed to have been given 40 acres and a mule, and this promise was made to former slaves. Now, this was overturned, and most of the land given out to the people that did get it was given back to white people specifically. Another idea is that reversed racism is the biggest example of racism that is experienced, and that is racism against white people. White folks feel that it is worse than blacks and it's worse than Latinos and their experience of racism right now. And racism is still kind of seen as small acts of meanness and not institutional racism. So here's some example of white handouts. In 19, no, I'm sorry. In 1614, tobacco was land and labor intensive. 50 to 100 acres of land were given to populate the Americas to white Europeans specifically. It was white affirmative action and that these 50 to 100 acres were given to specific people in 1614. So only white people could take advantage of this opportunity, and it was only given to white Europeans specifically. In 1705, Virginia required white indentured servants to receive 20 bushels of corn, 10 shillings, a musket, 50 acres, as well as a mule. So this was specifically given to only white indentured servants. And again, they were given 20 bushels of corn, 10 shillings, a musket, 50 acres, and a mule. Now this was not overturned. And this was the same year that it was made illegal for whites to employ black people. This act drove poor whites against poor blacks and created a wedge of separation because before this, At times, poor whites and poor blacks would join forces in order to try to create social change. So you can see back in the 1700s, this wedge tactic of trying to keep whites and blacks at each other's throats has been used against us because they need us fighting each other to be able to stay in a ruling class. This was the idea that it was better to give to a chosen few rather than try to divide and conquer specifically so whether it was easier to give just just to white people than to everybody that was being economically oppressed specifically and they've moving and using this idea since 1705 now in post-revolution white benefits were part of the 1785 land ordinance Act that had 640 acres of native land given to whites at less than a dollar an acre, and it was given to white people only. This act was signed by Thomas Jefferson, specifically in 1785. 640 acres of native land given to white people only at this a dollar an acre price. Since 1785, also, these funds were set aside for public education. So all the money that was raised was set aside for public education. Notably, that public education was only really given to white people only. So you can see another example of historic white affirmative action. Moving forward, the Homestead Act of 1863 excluded blacks because it was for citizens only. 10% of all land went to white people and white men specifically because you had to be a citizen in order to receive it. Even if black and brown people were citizens, the racist practices made the distribution of land very, very unfair. Few blacks could get that land, and most were were removed by racist practices, which were used by the U.S. Department of Agriculture at the time. So you can see with that Homestead Act of 1863, there was another big giveaway of land and it was only for citizens. And given that black and brown people were not citizens, they were left out of this thing because they were not white. Now moving forward to 1929, the stock market crash and the new deal. So massive amounts of middle-class wealth were built, but this was hurt by the idea of redlining. Home ownership was for people at the time that only could afford 50% down and were able to pay off the rest of their home in two to four years. So I don't know anybody right now that could pay for half their house right now and pay off the rest in two to four years. The New Deal made 50 to 30 year mortgages available for most people in the middle class, except for the fact that there was redlining, which limited the wealth of the home that could be bought. Home ownership whipped from 30% to 70% and most homes were built in the suburbs and red lines specifically. Red line means that they were only really allowed to be purchased or bought by white people specifically. If they ever found out you were not white, you were not allowed to buy the home. And also, they didn't loan predominantly to non-white neighborhoods. Blacks and brown f- folks were left out of this process and the fact that they had no access. Also, where new work went, went to where there was new development, created better infrastructure in those areas. So you see all this amazing, great infrastructure and all these infrastructure projects being taken on in the suburbs specifically, while black and brown people who live in urban areas were left left to less than quality infrastructure and that had also drove down the values of black and brown inner-city homes. And this has happened until now with gentrification, in which the same thing happens. There's new infrastructure built in a specific area, more white people start moving into an area, and the black and brown people can't afford to stay and live in the same spaces. Now in 1933 and 1952, $33 billion was made available in the form of business loans. Now, adjusted for inflation, that amount right now would be $2 trillion. 98% of those loans made available since over 1933 to 1952 were given to white people specifically. It excluded agricultural workers who were primarily black and brown people. Additionally, when Social Security was created in 1935, it excluded domestic and agricultural workers who, again, were primarily black and brown people. So again, here's this benefit made available, and who benefits the most? White people, again, specifically. In fact, two-thirds of all black workers were excluded from the program until Social Security was expanded in the 1950s, and it's also interesting to note that Social Security is considered this giant, terrible entitlement program, and people want to get into it and dismantle it. I wonder why they want to dismantle it, and I wonder who they're trying to keep out. The next example of white affirmative action is the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, or the GI Bill. It sent veterans of World War II, as well as the Korean and Vietnam Wars, to college. Now, on paper, there was no racial distinctions. but. The college climate in the 50s, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was segregated. Where did men of color go? The only places they could go were historically black colleges and universities, and of course, these universities got less money. Not many were available when most were considered teachers or agricultural schools, and they were only really considered for black and brown people specifically, which is why those schools got less money. White schools didn't let people of color in. White people had access to government-sponsored education in ways that people of color did not have. Less options means less access. So if there's only a few historically black colleges and universities, but everybody gets the benefit, who really gets the benefit? Many white people were allowed to become doctors, engineers, scientists, or businessmen. Or it allowed folks to get into trade schools, but again, men of color were at a disadvantage due to the military's racist practices in the military when it came to assigning jobs. So when you're in the military, you get many different types of jobs. Now, because the military was racist at this time, they didn't, uh, black and brown people didn't get access to the same types of jobs that led to people becoming doctors, engineers, scientists, or businessmen. When it came down to assigning jobs, white men had the chance to learn building, mechanical skills as well as construction skills, whereas men of color became dishwashers or cooks. This was a multi-generational problem as well and that the draft happened during this time too. So if white people are getting assigned these places and opportunities where they can learn and become better in the military and blacks and brown people are becoming cooks and dishwashers, they're not learning skills that are going to serve them once they get done with their military experience. When we talk about why people are poor, we often hear about choices and mindsets, while failing to look at, over time, people who have been systemically left out of economies. In 1944 until 1971, the GI Bell spent $95 billion on vets to help them buy homes, get vocational training, and start businesses. It's noted that Ira Katz-Nelson One of the southern white lawmakers made sure that benefits would be overseen and marshaled out locally instead of February, making the benefits of the GI Bill subject to Jim Crow practices. Private mortgage lenders, trade schools, and bankers turned away black and brown applications over and over again. A few people of color did benefit, but the overall effect of the law was to widen the wealth and opportunity gaps between black, brown, and white Americans. The transfer of wealth in white families goes in the form of a social safety net, or as a down payment on a home, or in ways to help with education, right? So you see wealth going from parent to child specifically, right? It's a social safety net or a step up. Another way where you can see the transfer of wealth in white families is buying a car or help with a home to live in specifically. Or it can be with social security in the that you don't have to take care of your parents in white families. Another form of white affirmative action, right? Now, with people of color, money travels from the adult child up to the parent. So it doesn't move forwards, it moves backwards to care for the parent rather than making it so the child does better than the parent, historically. So all these social safety nets helped parents in white families make sure their children got further, whereas in black and brown families, you see money going back to help parents rather than being used by children to move those folks forward. The median household income is 13 times the wealth of the average black household. The average white family, led by someone who hasn't completed high school, still has more generational wealth than the average black household with someone that has a college degree. If affirmative action is race-based access to colleges and universities, when was it legislated and when was it actually instituted? 1618 was the year that affirmative action started. It started when whites got 30 shillings, 50 acres of land, a mule, a musket, and 10 bushels of corn. That was the first instance of race based affirmative action. And it was for whites people specifically. The next one was in the naturalization act of 1790 where it stated, if you are white, you can become a citizen. This specifically was about race. It was not about merit. It was not about hard work. It was not about meeting the criteria. It was the fact that that someone was just white, just that color of their skin gave them access to loans, To the right neighborhoods to live in, to the right types of jobs in the military, to land. Those things were made available if, if you are white. So this country was built on affirmative action for white people. Affirmative action is a white phenomenon. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, does affirmative actions even work? Well, honestly, it's hard to say with any honesty. It's based on opinion. But I do think it has helped recently with equity in college and universities. But I also think that white people, not all white people, but many, are beginning to poke and prod at affirmative action efforts that are intended to create equity specifically and are actively trying to kill it. And it's, it's because that affirmative action is not benefiting them anymore. It's benefiting new folks and they don't like it. And I have heard it said, when you've been on top for so long, equity can feel like oppression. And I got this from a Huffington Post article. So this is something I really wanted to add in. I added a link so I could show my proof of work in this specifically. When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression you see that stuff when black lives matter becomes all lives matter you see that when when it comes to diversity inclusion issues religious freedom starts trumping the idea of gay equality or gay equity we hear about immigrants we hear about people angry at muslims and we hear about People so pissed about happy holidays. And they're angry that they're not being able to say these things without being called a bigot. And all these ideas basically boil down to people who have grown accustomed to their way of life and they expect everyone else to move out of their way. So when those people in their path don't move, they start wondering, why am I always moving out of this guy's way? What if I didn't move? What if I just kept walking? When people start believing they have every bit as much right to an aisle as everyone else, it starts to feel like their rights are being taken away. Equality can feel like oppression, but it's not. What you're feeling is just discomfort comfort from losing a little bit of your privilege. The same discomfort when an only child feels Like they're the center of the universe, but then goes to preschool and discovers that there are other kids who want to play and they want to use different toys or use the toy that you're using specifically. It's like an old man used to having a community pool all to himself. Having that pool opened up to everyone in that community. And then that old man yelling, but what about my right to swim in my pool by myself? And what we're seeing politically right now is anger on both sides. On one side, we see people who are angry about those people being led into our pool, and they're angry about sharing their toys with the other kids in the classroom. We're also seeing people being angry about being labeled racist, just because they say racist things and have racist beliefs. They're angry because they're having to consider others who might be walking toward them, and they're strangely exerting their own right to exist to them. Now on the other side, we see people who believe the pool is for everyone. We see people who realize that when kids throw a fit in preschool, we teach them about how sharing is the right thing to do. We see people who understand that being careful with language is a way of being respectful to others. We see people who are attempting to stand in solidarity with the ones who are claiming their right to exist. The ones who are rightfully angry about having to always move out of the way. People who are always having to ask themselves that question. What if I just keep walking? Affirmative action has been a part of American culture for a long time. We're just starting to equal out who gets that affirmative action specifically. So folks that are just waking up to the idea that affirmative action sucks and it's kind of unfair, aren't realizing that it's always sucked and it's always been kind of unfair we're just trying to level the playing field out a little bit so in review the major points of this podcast were what was the nature and history of affirmative action we gave some examples of white affirmative action and we talked a little bit about when you have been privileged so long equity can feel like oppression so again if this podcast made you think of something if you have a critique if you're pissed or if you want to talk to me more about affirmative action and how you're upset or how you agree, please do so. You can email me at inclusiveactivism at cox.net. That's I-N-C-L-U-S-I-V-E-A-C-T-I-V-I-S-M at cox.net. Or you can call me and you can yell at me or you can cheer me on at 860-576-9393. Again, that phone number, the hotline is 860 576 93,93. 93. Good, bad or ugly, I'm willing to hear from anyone here. And so that's the place to talk to me, to give me questions, to hit me with scenarios about how to act in situations in real time. And if your stuff is really good, I will give it either a first take response or I may make it, make it the entire topic of a future podcast. And also, if you are interested in booking me or bringing the power of inclusive activism to your organization, you can do so at inclusiveactivismatcox.net, or you can learn more about me, Sarah, and this organization at www.inclusiveactivism.com. Thank you for taking the time, and I can't wait to talk to you in a couple weeks.